Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. I don't know if Kevin knew this. I don't know if how many of you knew this. But that song, I believe, was, was written by Sandy Patty. I don't know if you guys remember that. That was my growing up years. Was I had a Sandy Patty tape that I listened to all the time. Sandy Patty and Steve Green were, were some of the musicians I grew up listening to. So I remember that from a long, long time ago. Some of you are thinking, she was contemporary when I was just not too long ago. All right, so Mark chapter 9. I just wanted to give you time to turn to Mark's gospel. So Mark chapter 9, we're going to continue, and I'm actually I'm going to read our passage first. So I'm going to read Mark 9, verses 1 through 13 as we begin. So you can follow along as I read Mark 9. And he, that is Jesus, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6, for Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around... They no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, he, that is Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Well, that's our passage. Maybe you have some questions going around. I'm I'm afraid you'll probably have some of them after I'm done talking. Okay, this is a confusing passage, but but I do think that I I can help us understand the main the main idea, the main the main point here. And so at the outset, let me just tell you that the main idea of this passage is is the glory of Christ, the the glory of the suffering Son of Man. So that's the title, the glory. If you remember last week, it was was the the suffering Son of Man. This week, it's the glory of the suffering Son of Man. Remember remember last week, Jesus talking to Peter and the disciples, they they couldn't understand that the the Messiah had to suffer. So Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. You're the Messiah. You're not going to suffer in the way you've just said. And so Jesus has plainly told them that, but they can't reconcile him as the Christ and him suffering. And so, as that conversation continues, we actually saw that that Jesus says, not only am I going to suffer, but if you want to follow me, you're also going to suffer. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so not only is the the Son of Man going to suffer, but Jesus told them the the cost of following me, which all of you are doing, he says, is also costly. You're going to have to deny yourselves take up your cross, and follow me. And so that's where last week ended, with with this call to follow the suffering Son of Man. 
And so our, our passage, as it picks up in, in chapter 9, verse 1, remember when this was originally written, there weren't verses and chapters. So this is just a continuation. And so it picks up, it's tied directly to what came before. And that is, here Jesus knows the difficulty of the disciples to reconcile the Messiah and suffering. And so what he does is he's going to take three of them, not all of them, but three of them, and he is going to assure them through what happens, assure them without a shadow of a doubt that that he is the one, that he is the Christ, that his power and his glory are going to be revealed to these three in a unique way here on the mountaintop. And he does this, he reveals his glory, we're going to see the glory of the suffering son of man in order to solidify in their minds that, that this idea of suffering that he's told them must happen, that's not incompatible with his glory. Okay, so, so suffering and glory, they're not incompatible. That's what Jesus wants to say. And so he's actually going to show them that, that his suffering is what's going to lead to his glory. Okay, so, so they're not incompatible. And in fact, they're actually, they work together in concert. And so the glory or the majesty of the Son of Man is the main idea. So let's look. I, I've broken it down in, into three sections. So, so section one, we see a great promise. That's just in verse one. Then section two, we see a great promise fulfilled, verses two through eight. And then third, a perplexing question, verses nine through 13. So the great promise, promise fulfilled, then the, the perplexing question. So let's look firstly, verse one. Verse one, the promise, the great promise. And so in light of what, what Jesus has just told his disciples, remember last week, of what he's just told them about himself and those who follow him, this promise is a bit of a, a counterbalance. This, this promise assures that his disciples, assures his disciples that suffering and death won't be the last word for the kingdom of God. Because they've just heard he's going to be conquered, he's going to die, he's going to suffer. And here is this, this temporary glimpse, this taste, this foreshadowing that, that some of you here are actually going to see the coming glory of the kingdom of God and, and glory of the Son of Man before you die. So look at the promise there in verse 1. It's the promise, pretty straightforward. He says, truly or verily or truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, I'm not going to waste time talking about all the ways this has been interpreted because honestly, I think as, as we work through this, the meaning here is, is pretty clear. I think you're going to see if, if you've, you've, you've seen my outline, I'm going to argue that verses 2 through 8 fulfill this promise. Okay, it's the promise fulfilled in verses 2 through 8. So I don't think this is some future thing that, that, that we have to explain, well, well, Jesus was wrong, or well, the, John didn't actually die, and he actually was going to see. So, so we're going to work through. I think the, ma- the meaning is pretty clear and straightforward that, that this promise is fulfilled in verses 2 through 8. But, but what is the promise? Let, let's get that first before we look at how it's fulfilled in verses 2 through 8. So, so at the outset, what, what is the promise? There's some standing here, Jesus says. This means not everyone listening, but there's some. There's some that are standing here that what? What's going to happen? They're, they're not going to taste death. What does that mean? They're not going to die. They're not going to experience death. They're, they're not going to close their eyes in death. They're not going to experience death until what? Okay, some standing here are not going to taste death until... Jesus continues, they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Now, now here's the, the part where we might lose you, right? Well, what, what does that mean? Some are standing here, and they're not going to die until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. In other words, what Jesus this promised, what he's saying is, some of the disciples are going to see with their very eyes, the eyes in their head, as he's talking to them, 
are going to see the power or, or the glory or the majesty of the kingdom of God before they die. Yes, that's the promise. Now, now, now back up and think about the context. They've just heard the Messiah is going to suffer and die, and they, they can't reconcile that. They, they don't understand how a Christ who's conquered can also be, be glorious or majestic, right? C- conquered Messiahs aren't majestic or, or they, they don't have glory. And so here, Jesus promises that some of them are going to see the glory and majesty of the power of the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to establish. Okay, so it's a, a foreshadowing, a, a taste they're going to get a foreshadowing of the glory that will accompany the kingdom, uh, the coming of the kingdom. Okay, so, so the foreshadowing, they're going to see this glory or the majesty. I'm using those interchangeably. I think it's the same meaning that, that is now hidden or concealed. Okay, with, with him taken on the flesh and as he goes to suffer in Jerusalem, there's this glory that, that's, that's not clearly seen. It's not yet on full display. Okay, but, but they're going to see the, the, the glory fully on display before they die. I mean, that's what he's saying. You're going to see this glory. The glory that, that's coming, you're going to see, you're going to get a foretaste or a foreshadowing. Which then begs the question, well, when's it going to happen? Okay, we got the promise. Well, when is that going to happen? Good question. Look at verses 2 and 3. We look at the second section, the promise fulfilled. Look at verse 2 and 3. Immediately after this promise, Mark continues, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. He led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. In his clothes, they became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so in somewhat of an anticlimactic fashion, this is it. Here's the fulfillment. He was transfigured or transformed before them. He was transformed. His clothes became bright. This is them seeing the glory or the majesty or the power. We'll, we'll talk about that more as we look at the verses. But, but let me just make one of the, the, make the case why I think one of the strongest arguments make the case that, that this is a fulfillment of what the promise was. And that's, I want you to write down, I think I have them on the slide, but write down Matthew 16, 28 and Matthew 17, 1. And then write down Luke 9, 27 and 28. So don't go to them now. I'll tell you what they say, but you can go back to them. But, but here's why I think that we're, we're on the right track when we understand that, that verses 2 through 8 are a fulfillment of what just happened. Both of those, Matthew 17 and Luke 9, they're the other gospel accounts of these same events. Okay, so so if, you, if you're familiar with the gospel, there's a lot of the same things that happen. They're recorded, actually, the synoptic gospels called Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, John has a lot of unique stuff. John's kind of his own guy. There's a lot in John that's not in the other three. But these three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic gospels because the word synoptic means same. They're believed to come from the same source. So there's a lot of overlap. Now, what you'll find in these gospels is that a lot of the times the gospel writers will switch things around. Okay, they, they don't have this idea of order has to be the same. They say, well, no, this happened at some point. I'm going to use this here to make a pointer. So they, they have freedom to do that. But in all three gospel accounts of the transfiguration, okay, that's what those two are immediately after the promise that those, some standing here aren't going to taste death, immediately after, every gospel account follows up with what happens on the mountain of transfiguration. So do you see why that, that's, that, that's, that holds weight for me, that, that in every case, the great promise is immediately followed by the promise, by the transfiguration. So the promise is always followed by the transfiguration, which tells me that all three gospel writers were intent with keeping the great promise with what immediately followed. There, there's no variation between the gospel accounts. And so, I think it's, I think it's safe to say that, that what happens is the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, so, so how, 
How does what happens on the mountain fulfill the promise that Jesus had just made? Okay, so Peter, James, and John, not all of them. So just three of them go up. Okay, it's, it's, not, it's not everyone. It's just this, this inner circle of his disciples. And so they go up. And, and so let's look at There's five things that I, that I think testify or point to the glory of Jesus that, that take place on the mountain. So let's look at them first. Verses 2 and 3, we see his radiance. We see his radiance, verses 2 and 3. He was transfigured before, before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so, so they're up on the mountain, they go with Jesus, and in a, in a moment, in a matter of seconds, Jesus goes from, from normal looking to, to bright, glowing, radiant. Mark records that it's his clothing that was transformed. Uh, I, think, I think it was Matthew that talks about it, it was his, his, his face that was glowing. Regardless, his clothes, Jesus is intensely white. Whiter, Mark even says, whiter than anyone in the entire world could ever bleach them. I mean, this is an otherworldly whiteness. This isn't just, oh, he got a new, he got a new tunic at the store, and it's pretty white. It's clean. No, this is, this is not of this world. This is an otherworldly white. And so this entire mountaintop, so, so that, that in and of itself proclaims glory or purity or majesty, just, just the glow. But it also alludes to, to the, the majesty of Jesus because this event parallels another biblical event. Do you remember another time in, in the story of Scripture where God meets with a man on a mountain and the resulting effect is a glow? Do you remember that? Our Bible scholar, Moses, right? Moses on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. So, so you can write down Moses or Exodus 34, Exodus 34, and, and listen to the account of Moses. This is Old Testament. This is way before Jesus. But listen to as Moses goes and meets with God on the mountain. Listen to what happens. This I'm beginning in verse 29 of, of Exodus 34. It records, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel, they saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation, they returned and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when he finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. And so it goes on. Whenever Moses would go talk to the Lord, he'd take the veil off. When he came down, he'd put the veil over. Okay, so, so just like, so, so when, when Mark is recording this transfiguration, I believe in the back of his mind is the Mount Sinai experience of Moses. So that, here's why that's important. Just like in the ministry of Moses, Moses was attested by God with a divine glow, a divine glory, a shining face. That was Moses. He had met with God, and he was attested. The people saw him. They said, well, he's, he's been with God. Right? That, that's what the glow communicated to them. In the same way, here on, on Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is being attested to by God. Jesus and his ministry and his teachings, they're, they're being affirmed by God himself. Now, now, his glow is not a result of talking with God. His glow is a result of being God himself. We'll see that later. But the first, first evidence is his radiance. Second, second factor, second reason we see in verse 4, the presence of Moses and Elijah. The presence of Moses and Elijah there in verse 4. So they're there. Jesus is glowing. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, here's, here's where there's a lot of questions, a lot of speculation. Why these two? Why, what's their significance? Why, why are they there? Why not David? Or why not Abraham? Why these two? 
And, and what are they talking about with Jesus? Right? And you see, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, most of these questions don't have answers. Mark doesn't feel a burden to, to give us all this information. He doesn't fill in the blanks. Mark simply says they were there and they talked with Jesus. He doesn't record what they talked about, which, which tells us, nosy readers, it really doesn't matter what they talked about. Right? The, the significance is that they were there. Their presence with Jesus is what Mark wants us to get. Now, some people, why, why these two? Some people argue, well, it was Moses and Elijah. They represent the entire Old Testament. Now, you've heard that Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets. And so we have meeting this, this coalition of all the Old Testament scriptures there with Jesus, which would mean that these two men, Moses and Elijah, appear and they represent continuity between the Old Testament and between Jesus. It could also mean that, that Jesus is, is the climax of all the Old Testament. I mean, a lot of things, and, and while those things are true, those things are true, Jesus is the continuity of the Old Testament, and he's the climax of what came before. I don't think that Moses and Elijah are meant to be seen as representatives of the law and the prophets. Rather, I think these two men appear because both Moses and Elijah, they, they had, there's Old Testament precedence or association. Moses and Elijah were, were often thought about in regards to, to the end-time salvation, the, the last days, the, the coming day of the Lord. These were end-time figures. They, they were eschatological figures, which is just a different way of saying they, they had to do, in the minds of the Israelites, in the minds of, of Jesus' contemporaries, they understood that, that, that Moses and Elijah, they are going to come and be associated with the end times. Okay, and so I think that's why those two are here. Okay, so, so Moses... Was, a, was promised, there, there's going to be another type of you, Moses, and he's going to come, and he's, he's going to lead my people. Or we'll see Elijah in a minute was associated with, with turning the hearts of the people. It's Malachi 4, 6, where, where Malachi says that, that before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah's going to show up, and he's going to prepare the way. He's going to restore the people so that then the, 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 the last days will, will be ready to come in. And so these two men, I think, simply are chosen to confirm that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be, that that the promises of God regarding salvation, specifically, remember, Jesus just talked about his death and his resurrection. So, so all that has to, to do with salvation and the coming of the kingdom, Jesus is who he says to be. That, that what he says about the end times, what he says about the coming suffering, they, they are affirmed by Moses and Elijah. That, that all the promises that, that, that Moses and Elijah had to do with, the proper understanding of, of these promises to them, were, were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And I mean, what better, what better way to confirm that, that Jesus is, is in fact the culmination of everything that had come before um, than, than to show that, that Moses and Elijah agree with Jesus, or they, they point to him, that they are part of this, this end-time schedule that Jesus has come to bring about. We'll say more about that in a second. So third, Peter's fear-filled response, verses 5 and 6. Peter's fear-filled response. Notice there in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it is good that we're here. I, I'm glad we're here, Jesus. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, or three tabernacles, some translations say. So, so, so Peter is excited. He says, it's good that we're here. I, I recognize what's going on. Let's make, let us make three tents for you. But verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So, so lots of questions here. What, why did Peter want three tents built? You can read commentaries or studies, and, and they can tell you p potential reasons. The only thing that we know is verse 6. He did not know what to say. So that's all that matters. Peter was terrified 
and he didn't know what to say. So Peter's reputation precedes him. He doesn't know what to say, so what does he do? He says something, right? He says, let's build something, and he's, he's terrified. And again, if you remember what I, when I read in Exodus 34, what happened when Moses came down and his face was shining, and, and, and Aaron and the people see, they're, they're afraid. They don't want to come near. I think this is another allusion to what happened on, on, in Exodus 34. These disciples, they, they see this transfiguration, and then they see Moses and Elijah, and, and it's happening right before their eyes, and they're awestruck. And they're afraid. Mark only clarifies here that Peter does not know what to say. So whatever Peter has in mind, right, his remarks are ill-advised. So, so don't waste your time. What does he mean by the building the three tabernacles? It doesn't matter because what he said was because he didn't know what to say. But he's, he's fear-filled because he's in the presence of Jesus and these other two. Now fourth, fourth we see verse 7, the, the testimony from heaven. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and the voice said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So in case these first, first, first three signs, if, if they've been missed here, the father, the voice from heaven, this, this is the father, right? As, as we read this, we should implicitly know this is the father, this is God the father from heaven, plainly testifying to who Jesus is. It's Actually, if you've been with us for a while, this is reminiscent of what happened at the baptism of Jesus. Do you remember what happened there when Jesus comes up out of the water? What does a voice from heaven say? This is my son with what? With whom I'm well pleased. Right? So, so that's an affirmation for, for those around. This man is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now notice here, it's different wording. It doesn't say with whom I'm well pleased. What does it say? This is my beloved son. And what's, what's the follow-up? Hear him or listen to him. Listen to him. Now, actually, Matthew's gospel does record him saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But here, Mark, he doesn't care about with whom I'm well pleased. He says, listen to him. And so here, the disciples, they, they hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, notice, Jesus doesn't say anything in this interaction. But remember what he just said prior in chapter 8. Remember the context. What did he just tell Peter and the disciples that they didn't believe? The Messiah, the Son of Man, is going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, I don't believe that. You're not going to, let me rebuke you, Jesus. So they're not believing him. So here's the Father saying, listen to him. Listen. The Messiah can't suffer, they thought. But here on the top of the mountain, a voice from heaven says, listen to him. All your expectations, all you think is going to happen Okay, they have to be reoriented to what he says. He takes priority over anything that you expect or assume. And then finally, fifth, verse 8, the superiority of Jesus. I think, that, I think this is the point here in verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone. So looking around, boom, Elijah, Moses gone. No one else is there that was part of that vision except one person. Only Jesus was there. So he still remained. So, so this vision, there's one thing that remains, and it's Jesus. The sudden disappearance of Moses and Elijah, I think, confirms the preeminence of Jesus. He is the one the vision is about. It's not, it's not about these other two. They're only in there in order to point to the significance of Jesus. He's the one who's come and the one who supersedes all those who came before. He's the one to listen to, which, let me just stop and, and make our first application. And that's simply this. Listen to him. 
I think an application that the same imperative that fell on the ears of the disciples from heaven, the same imperative, that, that's the command, they were told, listen to him, the same imperative that fell on their ears falls on ours here today. Listen to him, church. Listen to him. Disciples had trouble believing that the Messiah would suffer. So when, when the voice of God the Father comes down and says, listen to him. So after they hear that, they probably think differently about what Jesus has just said. In fact, they, they do uh, take it, okay, it's going to happen. We don't understand how it's going to happen, but okay, we're, we're good with it happening. They were subjected to Jesus. Their expectations about the Messiah, their beliefs, their understandings about God and the world were sub- to be subjected to this one. This Jesus, listen to him. The Father doesn't say, notice after this vision, or during this vision, the the voice of the Father doesn't say, listen to these men. Listen to Elijah. He has a lot of good things to say. Listen to Moses. Listen to the law. And listen, oh yeah, Jesus, he's, he's another one you should listen to. It's not all of them. There's one to listen to. There's one that, that's supreme. It's not as though he, he contradicted Moses and Elijah. He was bigger and better and superior to them. He's the one to listen to. And so that's our imperative. So, so take courage. Endeavor to hear the voice of Christ. Listen to him. Let what he says, let, let what we find from, from the lips of the Messiah shape our thinking, shape our expectation, shape our understanding of, of who God is, of, of the world that we live in. Let Jesus shape our understanding of the love of God. Let Jesus shape our understanding of of the forgiveness of sins. Let Jesus shape our understanding of of our future hope. Let Jesus shape our understanding of what discipleship looks like. Let Jesus shape our understanding of human sexuality. Let Jesus shape our understanding of the future. Let what Jesus says shape how we think about everything. Listen to him. And where else do we hear him save in his word? That's what we have before us. We we have a sure word in the scriptures. And so let us hear him in his word. In fact, write write down 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Go go back and read that this afternoon or or sometime this week. Because there, there it's written down. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Because Peter is talking about this very event on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, he says he was an eyewitness to the majesty and the glory of Christ, and that he heard the voice of God the Father from heaven. So Peter says that. And Peter says, as sure as that word was, he says, I was an eyewitness of this word. I heard the Father say, this is my son. But Peter says that, writing to the church, he says, you have a more sure thing something more sure than even the testimony of God from heaven on the mount. I mean, that, Peter says that you have the God-given, Spirit-inspired scriptures. I mean, let that settle on you, right? Do you, do you hear this and think, oh, I wish I could have been on that mountaintop that day and, and heard the voice of God the Father speak audibly about his Son, right? If you wish that you were there, Peter says that that same voice is actually more sure, but that same voice directly speaks to you in the scriptures. You can hear God's voice. You don't have to go to, to the Mount of Transfiguration. You hear the same voice, and the same voice testifies to the same person in the scriptures as on Mount Sinai. This is my son. Listen to him. So, so let me encourage you. Let us heed that voice. 
Well, after transfiguration, after Moses and Elijah are off the scene, Jesus is left. And his disciples, as they make their way down the mountain, there, there's a question that remains. Look at verses 9 through 13. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them, commanded them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So keep quiet. Don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man rises. Verse 10, surprisingly, the disciples obey this, this command of silence. Mark says, so they kept the matter to themselves. Even Peter, right? He kept it to himself. But they still had issues. They were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they ask him, I assume still making their way down the mountain, why did the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. So here, their question in verse 11. Okay, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly help us wrap our minds around this. I think their question in verse 11 has to do with their confusion about the resurrection that, that he's talking about. They don't know about what, what this resurrection means. So they say, well, why do they say that, that Elijah must come first? Okay, so Elijah coming in the resurrection, that, that's where their issue is. In the minds of Peter and James of J- and John, they believed in a resurrection. Right? That, it wasn't they didn't believe in a resurrection. They did. They certainly did. But their understanding, when the resurrection happened, when it took place, that was the end. Right? That, that was one of the final things to happen before the end. For the disciples, the resurrection was a sign for the end of the world. It was the forerunner to the final judgment in the new age. So when they hear resurrection, they think, oh, the end is really close. Jesus is he's going to rise again. That means the end is here. And so they ask, well, wait a minute. If the end is near, why did the scribes say that Elijah had to come first? You're saying the end is here. There's this resurrection coming. Elijah hasn't even been here. Why did they say that? Were they wrong in saying Elijah had to come? And so that's their question. So the disciples are curious. Why do the scribes teach that? As I mentioned earlier, in Malachi chapter 4, Verse 5 and 6, there's a prediction that Elijah was going to come before the great day of the Lord. So they, they wonder, why, why is the end here if Elijah hasn't come? And so, verse 12 and 13, though I think the order is a little bit awkward, he says to them, no, the scribes are right. Look at verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So he answers the question, no, the scribes weren't wrong. They're actually right. Elijah does come. And then you fast forward to verse 13. I tell you, Elijah has come. Elijah has come. They were right. But they missed it because he has come. And they did to Elijah whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And so here, the coming of Elijah, Matthew tells us that the disciples knew it was John the Baptist. So, so someone asked, is, is, is Elijah John the Baptist? Yes. Look, look at Matthew's account. The disciples, and there's this tradition that John the Baptist was the Elijah figure that, that was the forerunner that prepared the way. And this has been clear through Mark's gospel. But, but So Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. And so then, look back at verse 12. When Jesus says Elijah does come to restore all things, he asks, how is it written that the Son of Man, that, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And so I think this is the heart of the issue for the disciples. Now let, here, here's the logic. If, if Elijah is coming and has come to restore all things, okay, that's their thinking, Elijah's going to come, he's going to restore all things, he's going to fix things before the end, how come there's still, how, how come there's still a suffering Messiah, right? So if Elijah's come to restore things, how come you still have to suffer? If Elijah's come, you shouldn't have to suffer, things should be fixed, 
How, can, how come suffering is going to come after the restoration? So they understood when, the, when, when Elijah comes, when John the Baptist comes, when the restorer comes, things are going to be fixed, and, and we're just going to stroll into the kingdom. So they're saying, why, why suffering or crucifixion after the restoration? And so Jesus simply shows them your understanding of restoration. It's not what you think. It's not going to be this, 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 this ruling, this earthly kingdom like you're thinking. In fact, Elijah has come, and he suffered. In fact, he was beheaded by Herod. And John the Baptist, the Elijah figure, he came as part of God's plan. And what did God's plan lead him to? To, a, to headless, to losing his head. So he suffered as was written. So they did whatever they wanted to him. So why, Jesus says, why is it hard to understand that the Son of Man would also suffer as it is written? In other words, God's plan is being worked out and his, his, his messengers, his servants, are going to suffer. It happened to Elijah and it's going to happen to the Son of Man. None of God's messengers, not even the Messiah, are freed from the fate of suffering. And so, so that, that's, I think, the point. Elijah has come and he suffered, so why would you have trouble disciples believing that the Son of Man had to suffer? I, I think in a nutshell, that's, that's what happens. That's their question, that, that suffering is going to await the Messiah. And so with that, they make their way back down to the disciples and, and they find the crowd, a crowd waiting for them, which is where we'll pick up next week. Let me, let me briefly give you three applications as we close. And don't worry, these are quick. Three applications. First, the identity of Jesus. This is an application for, for almost every passage in the Gospel of Mark. Who is this one? So the identity of Jesus is on, in focus here. So we've come off Peter's good confession that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that Peter's confession was lacking, but here we have an even fuller testimony. This is the Christ who will suffer, the one to listen to. And so because of his identity, there's an authority that accompanies him and his teaching. If we want to understand the teachings of Jesus, we have to understand his identity. So his identity, he is the promised one. Second, Jesus and the Old Testament. In this passage, we see continuity, as I mentioned, between Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus is a continuation of all that came before. He's the climax of the story of scriptures. So, so when Jesus steps on the scene, there is a long story of narrative. There's, a, there's an entire history of God dealing with humanity that, that is the background to the appearance of Jesus. He doesn't just drop out of the sky without a context. No, he's the, he's the fulfillment of all that came before. So there's continuity. But we also see in this passage the superiority of Jesus. He's not in the same category as Moses and Elijah. As, as great as those two men, men were, they don't compare with Jesus. Right? They're, they're just part of the house. Jesus comes as, as the builder of the house. So a builder gets more glory than the house itself. It's just a house. It's the builder that's praised for the house, not the house itself. So Jesus is the builder. They're just part of it. So he's superior to all that came before. Then last, the last application, vindication after suffering. Vindication after suffering. Remember that, that this entire event comes after the disciples' failure to understand that the Messiah must suffer. Okay, and, and I would assume that likewise, they don't think the Messiah should suffer. They don't think they should suffer for following the Messiah. So that's, that's what was just on the heels of this. And so this, this vision of a transfigured Jesus, it's a foreshadowing of the coming glory of Jesus. Remember, this is glory, His majesty. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to come. In other words, the promise of transfiguration is that suffering and sacrifices are not in vain. 
So the vision of the glorified Christ is confirmation that after his humiliation, after his suffering and his death, he will be vindicated and he will be glorified. And so their, their short-sightedness of, oh, the Messiah is on the cross, right? They're going to re- be able to remember, wait a minute, he's coming with glory because we've seen that glory. And so Peter will say, I'm telling you about the coming of the Christ because I've seen it. And so it's a forward look and there's vindication. The same glory that we saw is what, uh, is what Christ will return with. And it's after, so there's vi- he will be vindicated. His suffering will not be the last word. And so this is good for us to recognize this principle of vindication after suffering. It's good for us to know about Jesus, but it's also good for us to know about ourselves. Remember, Jesus calls us as his followers to the same type of suffering, the same type of rejection and death. And so this passage teaches, Christian, that each and every one of you, every follower of Christ, it teaches you that whatever you go through in this life, whatever suffering, whatever valleys, whatever difficulties, whatever you go through, and there are all kinds in this room represented, But for the Christian, your suffering, it's not the last word. Whatever difficulties you may encounter, this passage teaches that God will vindicate you. That God will restore you. That God will reward you. Here and now isn't all there is for the follower of Christ. This is the suffering. There's vindication coming. All the wrongs will be made right. Your suffering won't get the last word. And so take heart. Strengthen your weak, your weak joints. Press on. There's a day coming when, when all this suffering, it will, it will pale in comparison to the glory that we will know with Him in eternity. That's good news for us. We've been called to take up our crosses and deny ourselves and follow Him. So, so let's do so as followers in hope. Let's pray. Father, we worship the risen Christ, who is exalted. He is exalted. The King is exalted on high, and and we praise Him. And so we thank You that He suffered on the cross so that we might have hope, that our suffering won't get the last word. And so would You encourage us as Your people, as, as we endeavor to follow You in this life? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.